All right, welcome to the Red Triangle Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kozlowski. Um, we're about halfway through the position rankings, so we're going to take a break from those, and we're going to talk draft strategy. Um, right now, draft time for a lot of people, and we think it's important to talk about um, what you guys are doing out there for your drafts to get ready, and then once that day hits, whether it be an auction or a snake draft, how are you going about it? Um, to put yourself in the best position to be there come September. Um, Joining me today, Shane Stein, back at it again. Good to be here, Matt. And we brought back Kyle Stramara, um, who did the third base podcast with us. So we brought back uh, you, Kyle, to join us. How are you doing tonight? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problem. Um, All right, so draft strategy. Um, Let's start talking... First of all, do you guys prefer auction or snake? Um, whichever one you guys prefer, we're going to start with the other one. So, Shane, which which uh, format do you like better? Uh, I'm definitely a big auction draft guy. Um, when I first started playing, obviously, snakes were the way to go. I mean, auctions were kind of a new thing. And uh, ever since we started doing auction in our league, uh, I'm a big fan of it. Gives you a better opportunity to target some players that you really want on your team. So... I'm an auction guy. Kyle? Yeah, uh, similar to Shane, I started out with the snake drafts, and um, honestly, it was a whole new drug when I got to auction because I was finally allowed to get anybody I wanted on my team, at least have the opportunity to go out and get them. Um, It was always frustrating to have a certain pick in the snake draft, and the guy you really targeted going right before you, so uh, I, I personally, I love auctions. Yeah, I'm right with you guys. Um, auction is definitely a better format, especially with a group of guys that you know. But there's nothing wrong with a good old snake draft every now and then. Um, <clears throat> I think the nice thing about snake drafts, especially right now when you're doing mocks, is you can kind of see where the public falls on guys. Um, and you know, see what the general consensus is on some players and whether or not you know if you're going to have to go that extra dollar or two to get them, or if you think that you might be able to get them at a cheaper price. Um, it also, I think, when you do some mocks, it tends to help you out with the order in which guys are going to be thrown in an auction. Now, you got your guys that are kind of um, free birds. They do it a different way, but usually the guys that are being talked about the most in the winter are the guys that people want to get thrown out early and get them off the table in auctions. So those are a couple things that um, I've been looking at here when I've been I've done two or three mocks so far. Um, one team I really liked, one I didn't. So let's talk about snake drafts then, since we want to finish with auctions, since you guys both love them. Um, first question for a snake draft: This year, I think there's in in most snake formats, there's four players going in the top four. For the most part, it's really been Harper, Trout, Goldschmidt, and Kershaw. One through four in almost every draft I've seen. So would you want to pick... I've heard a lot of people say they want to pick third this year because whoever takes Trout, Harper, and Goldschmidt, you get the third one, and it's made the mind, your mind's made up for you. You don't have to make that call. Um, you guys like drafting, I guess, at the beginning or the end of the draft. And if you're at the beginning... Would you want to be first to have your choice, or would you want to have your choice made up for you? 
I think I'd want to have my choice, personally. Um, I don't really like when anyone else is making a decision for me. Um, I kind of like getting my mind made up, figuring out which guy I'd like. I mean, I I can see the advantage of, obviously, (coughs) if you go third there, Trout and Harper are off the board, you're probably going to take Goldie, and then you're going to get a pick before those guys the next time through. So, I mean, there's a slight advantage to it, but to say there's not a difference between those players, I think that if you're savvy enough, you can find a way to make it suit your advantages a little bit, uh, being able to pick the guy that you want. Well, before we go to Kyle, then follow-up would be, you know, you said if you're savvy. I consider you fairly savvy. So, of those three, can you rank them? If you were one, taking first, Harper, Trout, Goldschmidt, where are you going? I'm going to take Goldschmidt over, over Harper and Trout, personally. Um, I just feel like uh, I can find value in the outfield easier. Um, obviously, I mean, you, t- you take any one of those three, you're, you're off to a good start. But I don't know. I just feel like the value that Goldschmidt brings and the position that he plays is, is slightly better, in my opinion, than, than taking Harper or Trout. Yeah, good time to plug the first base podcast. Um, as we talked about, first base, not as deep as it's been in past years. So, yeah, Goldie's the clear-cut favorite there. And, you know, I'd have to agonize over. I'd probably still go Trout, but um, definitely would think about Goldie. Kyle, um, give us some thoughts on everything that I asked you guys and Shane just talked about. Yeah, um, uh, I would personally like to have my own choice of the three as well. Um, Like Shane mentioned, I'm similar in that I don't like people making choices for me. Uh, I think um, I would prefer to be in the two spot, um, being that I would uh, have that little bit of advantage over that other guy and still probably have my, my choice between uh, two of the others. In my opinion, I, I would assume in most cases we're seeing Trout go number one, so I'm getting my choice of uh, you know Harper or Goldie. Um, so I, I can make that decision when the time comes. And So if you're asking me to, to rank those guys, uh, I'm going – Trout, Harper, Goldie, in my opinion. So, a little different than Shane there, who's, who's favoring the first baseman. Does the does the position value come into play at all there for you, Kyle? Because I, I believe Harper and Trout are better players. I think they're they're going to be a little better like overall. But does the position value that Goldschmidt brings uh, come into play for you at all? It seems like it doesn't. No, for me personally, it doesn't. I, I, I might be on the... I guess lesser side here of people and um, you know the minority didn't think of that word <laughs> uh, anyways I, I would be on the minority I think in saying that I think Trout and Harper are that much better than Goldie uh, that I, I'd take one of them for sure alright so the one name out of those four that I gave you guys we didn't talk about was Kershaw I does Kershaw belong in the top four to you guys in a snake draft is the difference between him and all the other pitchers um, obviously that much greater, or would you rather go for a guy like maybe Donaldson at four? Well, you guys know me in the past. I'm not a very high guy on starting pitching, so I wouldn't bother taking Kershaw if I had the number four spot. I'd definitely go with another offensive bat, someone that's going to be a big producer home run-wise, RBI-wise. I'd let Kershaw slide more towards the bottom of the first round if, if it's me drafting. 
but I think the, the difference between Kershaw and the rest of the field <clears throat> is pretty significant as far as starting pitching goes. So, I mean, he's still my first pitcher off the board, obviously, but I'm, if I'm at the top of the draft, I'm, I'm going to go offensive player. Well, the interesting thing for me about Kershaw is, you know, you and I got to keep Kershaw last year in the league. We got to keep one pitcher, one hitter, snake draft format. So we kept Kershaw, and we could only keep him for that year. And the nice thing about that for us was, I think it was round six when we took another pitcher. So we were able to really load up on our offense, and I think that's what made the difference for us. Um, it's a little different in a keeper format in that case, but um, that is the benefit of having Kershaw is you can really focus on your offense um, the next couple picks. So that's – I agree with you that I wouldn't take Kershaw for, but that is, I think, a viable strategy. Kyle, your thoughts? Okay, so if you guys are anti-pitcher in the first round, my follow-up question to that would be, when do you guys start thinking pitcher in a snake draft? I don't usually start thinking until round four, somewhere around that area. Um, I'm thinking bats right away. First two rounds, definitely. Um, round three, round four rolls around. If there's still an ace out there, someone I, I feel is a top-tier guy, I'll start targeting, but I'm trying to fill up as many good offensive players as I can. Uh, I feel like the pitching position is so deep. Uh, you can find a, find a lot of good value starting pitching-wise that you can get a lot of guys at the end of the draft for really good value, so I'm not going to worry about it. I usually want to get one ace on my team, but if I can't do that, I'm going to wait till round four or five. Yeah, that, that's interesting, and I think that's been that's been the strategy that I've tried to employ the last couple of years. Um, this year, the general consensus seems to be that there's about 20 aces in fantasy baseball this year, and people are trying to get two of them if they can. Um, with that being said, I think you would have to get, if you wanted an ace, I think you'd have to go into round three to guarantee yourself getting one of those aces in a 12-team draft. Um, obviously, we're talking roto or head-to-head -head categories. We're not talking a points league where pitchers are definitely the priority in a points league. Um, so I agree there's late value in pitchers, but the drop-off after that top 20 is um, those are your secure guys that you're really comfortable with. And then after that, you start to see some question marks. So that's kind of my, my point about pitching for this year. 
Yeah, I'm looking at the rankings here, and it has Kershaw at four, and then we don't have another pitcher until 17 with Scherzer, and then all the other top guys start coming off the board here with Arietta, Bumgarner, Price, Kluber, Sale, DeGrom, all in the, like, the 20s area. So, I mean, I guess my question for you guys is, if you don't take Kershaw with that high draft pick like we, like we spoke about, where are you taking him as the point where, all right, he's so much better, the value's there, I have to take him? Um, so after the top three, I would probably have Donaldson four. Um, I like Machado more this year than Kershaw. Um, I would probably take Correa before Kershaw. Um, I would even consider taking Stanton over Kershaw. And then I'd have to probably make a call. I'd say Arenado too, um, because we talked about how top-heavy first base is. So after those, what I say, eight guys, yeah. Kershaw would be nine for me, I guess. So I guess we're looking at, just looking at names here, it comes down to a choice between Miguel Cabrera, Andrew McCutcheon, <clears throat> uh, Jose Altuve. You lump Kershaw in with those guys as far as... I have Kershaw ahead of all three of those guys. Okay. Because if you're picking Kershaw at nine, you probably have a chance to get one of those then again with your second pick. So, But I don't think Kershaw gets back to you then. So that that's my stance on that. What are your feelings on that, Kyle? How far do you let Kershaw slide? And as far as you said, you want to go bats, um, but if he's there at the the number eight nine pick, are you taking him? Yeah, I, I. It's funny. I have to almost exactly agree with what Matt just said. Um, I wish I could add more to the conversation, but I mean, he said exactly what I was feeling. I, I have, uh, you know, Donaldson above him, Stanton, Machado. Arenado, Correa, um, and then that's when it starts to get more questionable uh, whether or not I'd, I'd take him or not. So, fair enough. So Correa, let's talk about him then. Um, you know, you sometimes worry about guys. We haven't even seen a hundred games from Correa. I don't believe. I think he played just under a hundred games last season. Um, any concerns there? For me, I'll just say this now. For me, um, there's not because this is just like we talked about Buster Posey. He's so much better than all the other shortstops um, that I feel like if you can get him in round one, you're helping your team so much um, that you don't have to worry about trying to fill that ugly position of shortstop. So that's why I have him there. I think he's he's definitely eighth out of those eight guys that I mentioned. Um I would rather have any of the seven before him over him, but um, that's my thoughts on Correa. Yeah, I think uh, Correa is a a late round, late first round pick for me. Um, I'd actually definitely take Correa over Kershaw if I had a a pick late in the first round. Uh, just the value at that shortstop position. We're gonna get to it the next time when we do our shortstop podcast. Uh, there's not a lot out there at that position. I mean, there's only a handful of guys that you can really lean on. And if you can get a guy like Correa to solidify that spot, it's going to make you that much stronger. Um, if you wait and wait and wait on shortstop, you're not, you might as well wait till the end because you're not going to get much. So I think Correa is a guy I would 
I would definitely target late first round. I'm thinking eighth or ninth, maybe tenth, right around that area. Absolutely. Talk about position scarcity. Shortstop is ugly. Um, you know, I don't know how we're even going to get a podcast out of shortstop. Um, so, in my opinion, yeah, you got to take him in the first round if you have that opportunity. Um, and definitely over Kershaw. I mean, there's so much value in having a, a good shortstop uh, of that caliber. I'm not concerned that he's only had a few at-bats. Uh, being that, like you mentioned, uh, Matt, that he's so much better than those other guys. Okay, so my next question then, talking about snake draft is, and I guess this is just drafting in general, there's a couple, there's three guys that only have DH eligibility this year. Um, Miguel Sano, David Ortiz, and Prince Fielder. Those are the three top names. How comfortable are you guys taking one of them, um, knowing that you've now filled your utility role? Man, this is a tough one for me. Uh, obviously, you'd like to have any three of those bats on your team, but for me, I'm I'm gonna have to wait till about round five, six, till I consider taking one of those guys. I'm not gonna waste my utility spot too early in the draft. I feel like and, and go and get one of those guys that can only play one position. Um, so for me, it's gonna be probably like round five until I consider drafting one of those guys. Kyle, same question. Um, I I would, and I do personally try and steer clear of guys who uh, only have that utility eligibility. Uh, I like the just that ability to move guys in and out of my lineup to different spots when I need to. Um, so, in general, I try to stay completely away from them. I'll, I'll find value in that round somewhere else. I mean, if you put me in a position where I'm forced to take them because the value's that good um, you know it's going to have to be round 6 or 7 for me. Does your thought process change at all with the seemingly seeming guarantee that Miguel Sano will have outfield eligibility at some point rather quickly this year um, you know you get a chance to get him in round 3 or 4 and you know at some point he's going to slide into that outfield spot does that change anything for him in particular, um, Ortiz and Fielder probably not so much, depending on what they're when they're when they play in NL ballparks, based off the new schedule format. Um, you know, you're not sure if, when they'll get first base eligibility, but Sano's a little different. So I guess let's talk about him. I mean, slightly, but I still think I'm going to stick right around round five for me until I consider these guys. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. The value for me, for all three of those guys, it's just not enough to jump into those high rounds, the three and fourth, third and fourth round. I feel like I can find guys with much better value at that point in the draft. That If I can get them in round five, so no, I'd probably take a look at yeah, them. Yeah, I'm also not going to change my stance there. Um, I'm not super in love with any of those guys. Okay, so, I mean, for me, Sano's a third-rounder in my mind. So, that, that does change things for me. Um, I, I'm not really a fan of Ortiz or Fielder because there's I think there's injury and body concerns there, but um, 
I feel like Sano is pretty locked in playing the outfield this year. So I think if I could get his production at outfield, I think he, you know, his numbers this year, they're going to end up looking like late first, second round numbers. So for me, if I can get him in the third, um, I'm in on that. So I guess we are, we're, we stand a little differently there. Um, all right, so <clears throat> if you're at the back end of round one, are you trying to go and you get a chance to get Altuve or I'm trying to think Altuve, McCutcheon, Pollock, Betts, um, guys like that. You know, Altuve is another kind of position scarcity guy at the end of the first round. For me, I don't like him as a first rounder. I'd rather get guys like Pollock and Betts. Um, but I'm interested to hear what you guys think about him. Again, we talked about second base being a little better than shortstop, so I think he's a different different case than Correa. I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on him. Yeah, Altuve is a second rounder for me. Clear second round. Uh, near the top of the second round, definitely. But I don't think he's worth taking my first round pick on. Um, <clears throat> the stolen bases came down a little bit last year. I think we've seen the best of Altuve. Not that he's not going to be great again. Uh, he's still a young guy. But we've seen the best of what he's going to do, and I don't think he's going to reach that level again. So for me, he's still a second-round pick just because of how much better he is than the players at his position. But I'm not wasting a first-round pick on him. So you have Pollock and Betts and McCutcheon and those guys ahead of him? Yeah. Kyle. Yeah, I, uh, I personally have Altuve as a, uh, a mid-second rounder. So uh, I definitely have those guys ahead of him. Um, you know, I, I'm not overly impressed with Altuve. Um, I think uh, I think we've seen his ceiling. I'm just not interested. Okay. Um, let's talk about closers next. For me, I like to get one top closer in a snake draft. Usually, you're probably around seven or eight. Um, some guys are content to wait on closer. So, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on that position. Because that's one that, if you don't get in on it at the right time, you, you can miss out and it goes quickly. Yeah, closers are the... Seems like every year you get in a snake draft, and once the first one comes off the board, it feels like ten are gone before you know it, and you either got to jump in on that, or, or you're you're going to be reaching for one. You're not you're, you might miss out on it by the end of the draft. So, I've gone a couple different ways on this in the past. Uh, I know we'll touch on it when we get to the auction portion, but it's always nice to have one. You got you got to go after one, um, and I generally like to make sure I get a top one. Um, if I can go out and get a Craig Kimbrell, if I can go get a, a Chapman, I mean, <clears throat> just go get a top guy, a top closer right away. That's what I'm going to do, just to make sure I have one. So I feel like it's a position that during the year, if you're vigilant enough, you can you can monitor where guys are going to be coming into that role, and you can take advantage of it. It's nice, but it's always nice to have at least one coming out of the draft. job security is just ridiculous um, so I personally wait for closers um, I usually draft one or two 
middle tier guys, and I'll just be waiting <clears> on the waiver wires to get the guy who's getting the job from other, uh, you know, not so good closers and get my saves that way. So you don't mind having closers on bad teams? I mean, this year in particular, I think, is a good year to talk about closers because, as we've talked about, there's about six teams, five teams in the National League alone who they're just throwing away this season. So, yeah, they're going to have guys closing out games, but their options may be limited. Um, and then the sixth team in the NL, you got a guy like Jake McGee on the Rockies. <clears throat> if you look at the Rockies games, they tend to blow teams out when they win because <laughs> they score so many runs at home. Um, so, Kyle, I guess I'm asking you first. Do you care about closers on bad teams? Um or you just kind of, if you got a job, you're good enough for me? Um, if you got a job, you're good enough for me, in my opinion. Uh, baseball, for the most part, you got close games. Um, so a bad team, when they do win, it's probably going to be close, and that closer's going to have to come out and get a save. Um, to make an interesting point about McGee, uh, I do tend to stay away from Rockies closers if I can. Uh, but if that's who's <clears> out there on the waiver wire, I'll put them on the team. Yeah, it's interesting. It all comes down to kind of what kind of league are you in for me? Because I remember last year, this came up in our league, and uh, the Red Sox closing situation was really dismal at the end of the year. I end up picking up both of their guys that were getting save save opportunities. Machi and uh, Gene Machi and Janichi Tazawa. I pick up both of them, and they were both just horrendous down the stretch. I mean, they're on a bad team, but if you're a closer, you, I feel like you have to be owned if you're in a fantasy baseball league. But, I mean, we have a, in our league where ERA, WHIP, and batting average against are, are all three categories that are in our league. So, I mean, they both killed me in those categories. It, I feel like it kind of <clears throat> wasn't worth it for me to chase those saves and kind of forfeit, not forfeit, but really hurt me in those other categories. I mean, I feel like you have to be careful. Closers have to be owned, I feel like, but there comes a, little, a point where listen, this guy's just not a very good pitcher, and it's going to hurt me if, if you're in a league that has those categories. Okay, so I want to get to that point here, but I want to go back to something you said first. Um, you said you like to get a top relief pitcher. So I'm going to start reading off names. You tell me when to stop, and you're trying to get one of this group. Kimbrell, Kenley Jansen, Wade Davis, Araldis Chapman, Juris Familia, Zach Britton, David Robertson. Stop. Okay, so Kimbrell, Jansen, Davis, Chapman, Familia, Britton. You said no to Robinson. What about Ken Giles? I'll take Giles. Trevor, Trevor Rosenthal? I'll take Rosenthal. I don't like Robinson. Okay, Melanson? I'm done there. All right. Houston Street, Cody Allen, I think we're pretty safe. Okay, so you have eight guys that you would want to get one of those eight. Okay. Mm-hmm. For me, if I can get two of those eight, I'm good for a while. And I may try, I may try and grab one of Kyle's junk guys at the end. Um, but I'm probably on the other end um, when it comes to closers, um, you know, and, and, and starting pitchers as well. I, I'd like to get one top starting pitcher, and then I'm good filling in guys at the end. So um, I tend to lean on getting some relief pitchers, good relief pitchers, especially closers. So the point you made then, I want to get to now, about relief pitchers 
that aren't good, but that have saves. Now let's talk about dominant middle relievers, guys like Dallin Betances, Andrew Miller, um, guys like that. Would you rather grab a couple of those guys and run them out every day, knowing that they're going to help you with whip, batting average against, ERA, even throw in some additional strikeouts, or do you value starting pitchers over them? I think I know the way you're going to answer. I definitely value those guys over the starting pitcher. Um, I just feel like you know what you're getting out of those guys. If I can, You can get a Batances on your team. You can get an Andrew Miller on your team. I mean, yeah, sure, they're only going to throw three or four innings in a week, but I just feel like those innings are going to be better than the average guy that you're going to be throwing out there as far as the starting pitcher. I mean, if I can get three innings out of Batances and get five strikeouts, it's going to be probably better than me picking up a random guy on the waiver wire and just throwing out an average starter. So I feel like those innings that you get out of those guys are going to be better than whatever you get just picking up an average starter. Kyle, you tend to be, I think, a streamer. So throw holds out the window and you're not trying to chase holds. Do you feel the same way as Shane? Yeah, so if it comes to – would you rather have a guy like Batansis that you can have in your lineup every week, um, almost every day, or you would you re- value a guy – like you can pick up a Mike Pelfrey if he has a good start or something like that? Well, yeah, I, I tend to uh, focus in on matchups for starters, and uh, I feel like I can find a starter that I trust uh, almost as much that I'll get those extra innings, extra Ks, um, without having to pay that price of, of drafting uh, a Batances, a Miller. Um, and I can basically just, you know, scout the waiver wire and, and find those matches that I like. And again, that goes with the type of league you're in. If, if there's a cap on innings or um, a max on starts for the week, Shane, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I mean, I feel like with those middle relievers, it's, it's few and far between as far as the guys that you would definitely want on your team and, and pay up or take a pick in a draft for. I mean, obviously, Batances is one of the best pitchers in the league, just pitcher, um, not position-wise. I mean, he's gonna he's a guy that's going to throw up an ERA that's going to be probably one of the best in the league, if not the best. Um, he's going to throw up a whip that's going to be one of the best, if not the best. So, I mean, we're really talking about a guy that's – in Batances, that's kind of like Mariano Rivera's stats that were just so ridiculous as far as what you're going to get. It's just he's only going to throw a limited number of innings throughout the year. So I'm still – obviously you're going to be playing a little bit of matchups as far as what kind of league you're in. But I think I'm willing to throw Batances out there in my lineup, even if holds isn't a category, and roll the dice that his innings are going to just be better. Interesting point on Batansis, and then we'll move on. But I just want to say, I think there's an opportunity for him this year. Um, he seems to be probably he'll be the first guy out of the three of them that pitches out of out of that him, Andrew Miller and Chapman. There might be an opportunity for him to pick up some cheap wins this year because the Yankees don't have good starting pitching. Maybe he comes in in the sixth or seventh inning of a tie ball game, they get a lead then, and he's the pitcher of record. I know that's kind of random and something that may be grasp, grasping at straws with him, but um, I do think there's a unique opportunity for him this year based off the talent in the Yankees' bullpen. Is that a, va- a valid, viable point, or am I grasping at straws? I mean, I think you're grasping a little bit as far as reaching for wins. I mean, it's such a tough 
tough thing to predict as far as middle relievers. I mean, there's a lot of luck involved as far as picking up a win when you're a bullpen guy. But I just look at him as the value that you get from, from the other categories, the, the ERA, the whip, the batting average uh, against. Those are all just so so strong for me that I think his value is worth it. Okay, one last question for snake drafts. Um, towards the end of your draft, are you guys more likely to take flyers on young players with high ceilings or older veterans with higher floors? So late in the draft, you know, you look at a guy like Jock Peterson, he's going pretty late in snake drafts right now. Um, or a guy like maybe Curtis Granderson who quietly had a nice season last year. Um, has a pretty high floor. You, for the most part, you know what Granderson is and what you're going to get from him. So, which side do you guys lean on? And Kyle, let's start with you. Um, I, I tend to do a little bit of both. Um, I wouldn't say I lean heavily either way. A lot of times it depends on, on the actual guy. Um, you know, as stupid as it sounds, sometimes you got a feeling about a guy going into a year and, you know, your gut's saying to stay away or saying to you know go with the old man that you know what you're gonna get so um yeah really for me it depends on on the actual player i wouldn't say i I lean heavily towards young guys or old guys in that situation well i guess it all depends on how you drafted throughout the draft for me um how you filled out your roster what you need but for me i think i lean more towards the young promising guys um the end of the draft like I kind of want that boomer bust and I'm hoping I know that if he busts it's probably not going to hurt me if I did a good job throughout the draft uh, filling out my roster so I want that guy that that's kind of a flyer that if he has that breakout season it's really going to make a difference and and vault vault me up in the standings so if I kind of go conservative and just go go with the route that's going to get me a conservative guy that's I know he's going to put up a just a standard year it might not make the difference for me but if I go with the guy that has that high ceiling and he does hit it, it, it raises my chances of winning winning at all yeah it definitely depends on how you start out your draft if you have more upside guys in the beginning you may want to go safer at the end but um, I agree with Shane in the fact that if you take some upside guys at the end if, and they bust A it doesn't hurt you and B there's probably safe guys out there on the waiver wire so the important lesson here is I guess um, your season doesn't end after draft day, especially in baseball. Um, all right, let's move on to auction here. First thing, and this may be a hard question to answer, but do you guys consider percent of budget um, when you talk about pitchers and hitters? And what is the percentage that you go with um, for hitters of your standard $260 budget? I definitely consider it. Um I generally always want to make sure we touched on it in the snake draft. I want to make sure I'm spending most of my money on the offensive side of the of the roster. Um, I usually like to keep it somewhere around the 150 to 160 range for my offense, and right around the 100 range for for my pitchers. So that's just generally stable. Obviously, there's going to be varying degrees as far as how how far I fluctuate from those numbers, depending on what kind of value I see out there, but. That's generally right around the 150 and 100 mark. So the 60-40 split, I think. Somewhere around there, yeah. The general consensus, I think, is typically 70-30. So why I'm, but just curious, Kyle, what about you? 
position position based budgeting then so you know you talk about Shane 160 for your hitters there's obviously positions where you want to go more more dollars for your positions then too right yeah definitely uh, a couple of years ago we talked about this in the catcher podcast I went big at the catcher spot and it burned me um, so that's something I'll, I'll probably never do again as far as paying up at that position I like to spend my money in the corner spots uh, first and third, the power spots, make sure I get some good power. And generally in the outfield is where I'll spend some money. Um, make sure I have a couple top guys there. But, yeah, I think first and third base is where I'm going to probably spend most of my money in general. Yeah, and I, I made a mistake last year on that end where I spent probably 20% of my budget on a shortstop because I thought that the gap between shortstop was so big. Um and it ended up not working out for me. So I kind of am back, I think, on that train where you want to get the spend the money where the production is more guaranteed based on that position. Kyle, what about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm spending the money where, uh, where the homers are. <clears throat> I think that's a statistic that, um, you know, is dwindling throughout the years. And so, um, you know, that's – I don't know if it's necessarily – So with that being said, I mean, you're okay with spending 100, 125 bucks on four outfielders as long as they're 25, 30 home run guys and then filling in the holes there at the rest of your spots? Absolutely. Um, okay, other auction question. The last couple years, um, I've had one guy that I wrote down that I'm not getting outbid for. And the last two years I've gotten those players. Two years ago was Jacoby Ellsbury. I liked him coming into New York. He ended up being okay. Um, I had a nice team that year, and he was a big part of it. But um, it definitely wasn't what I thought I was going to get for him. Then last year, that guy for me was Hanley Ramirez. I thought him moving to left field was going to be really good for his offensive production, and I was going to get shortstop eligibility out of him all year. And I, I ended up keeping seven hitters last year, so it was um, Ramirez getting thrown into those seven guys. I felt like it was going to really make my offense, and I'd be able to focus my money on pitchers, and that didn't work out. So <clears throat> I've kind of gone away from that prepping for this year where I'm not going to set my eyes on one guy and refuse to be outbid for him no matter what the price is. Is that something you guys ever consider doing? Uh, offensively, no. There's generally not a guy that I'm going to say, hey, I'm getting this guy no matter what. Uh, on the pitching side, definitely for me. Um, there's usually one guy that I target. I think that'll change for me this year in our draft because I always like to go in and make sure my goal is make sure I have one ace. Um, 
it's just kind of the way that I that I like to play fantasy baseball. Um, last year for me it was David Price. No matter what, I was going to get him. Um, this year things are a little different. I already have a pitcher that I like, so I don't know that I'm necessarily going to be doing that. But it still might be something that I try. I mean, <clears throat> generally I like to make sure I get one one pitcher and it, it comes at a, a steep price. I think that's something that you've done in the last couple of years, Shane, um, where you've maybe said these are, these are going to be, I think, the 10 most expensive guys in the draft, and I'd like to get two of them on the offensive side. Yeah, obviously with our league, it's it's a little different because we have so many guys off the board, so a lot of the top players are gone. So there's only so many really top guys available when we go into the auction every year. So we usually, we usually before the season, we, we write down what we think are going to be the top 10 guys or so. And it's always nice to make sure you get at least one of those. But it's not. I don't think I necessarily target one and say I have to have this guy. Yeah. Um, but definitely, we go. I think we both <clears> go <throat> in saying, "Hey, I feel like we gotta have at least one. Doesn't matter really which one." Um, but yeah, it, it's always nice, in, especially in our league, to, to make sure we get one of those guys. I don't necessarily think that we have to. I think we might see some strategy change a little bit. We talked about it this year. We talked about how. Teams that have been successful in our league don't usually go after those guys. Um, you, Kyle, it seems like you never go after those high-priced guys, and you're always successful. Uh, another guy, Andy, in our league doesn't seem to go after those high-priced guys, and it, and it seems to work out. So maybe there's something to uh, not going after those high-priced guys and putting yourself in a bind early in the draft. Well, it helps when they're usually keeping those guys, but uh, Kyle, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that. I mean, me and Shane were talking off the podcast that in the last two years, I think you and Andy went for $40. The most you guys ever spent on one player was Andy spent $40 on Joe Maurer two years ago, um, his last year of catcher eligibility. But that's something that we don't see you guys do a lot, and we, you know, I'm kind of thinking maybe that's leading to your success. question um, and then I want to hear your guys' thoughts on um, some other things that you guys want to talk about with auctions but so I on a website that I'm a subscriber of I ran 
um, basically players through auction calculator based on our league's format. And hypothetically, if we were throwing everybody back in um, and we all had an even $260 to spend, it had Mike Trout as a $71 player in our league format. Agree or disagree, and would you be willing to go more for that if you agree? So, 25% of your budget about. I disagree. Uh, I don't really think anyone is worth that amount of money. Um, I think Trout's the best player in baseball, don't get me wrong. But I have to disagree. I can't see myself spending $71 on an outfielder. I'm with Shane. I, I, that's a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, I know people in our league that will spend that money, and I'm fine with them doing it. Uh, I trust that I can spread my money out elsewhere and, and, and get uh, just a better all-around team than that person that's grabbing trout and then you know, grabbing for straws later on. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, We were trying to figure out who's going to have the money in our draft this year, and as I've been doing my prep, you know, I've been a little worried because I'm I'm in the bottom five, I think, of money, and what people are going to have to spend. I think you guys are both there with me in the lower, the lower third in the league or so. Um, <clears throat> and then I got to thinking a little more, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm good because those guys are all going to drop sixty plus dollars on players that, you know, it's going to bring them right back to where I am with money, and then I trust myself a little more. So, as long as my keepers can kind of help make up that gap of them getting the top guy. Um, I'm a little more comfortable with that. So I've been, I think you were going to talk something like that, Shane. Well, here, I, my next thing that I wanted to talk about was there's a mistake that I feel like teams in our league make every year. And it's the teams that, that are always at the bottom that have the money to spend. And I feel like it's a mistake for them not to go out and get the top guys. Um, so let me, let me make my point here. We have a team in our league – uh, Matt Burkhart this year, he, he's going to keep eight players, and it looks like they're going to cost him about $20. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have a ton of money to spend at the draft. He's going to have $240, $250. I think he picked up some cash. So he's going to have a, a lot of money to spend. I feel like it would be advantageous for Burkhart to go out and get a bunch of those top guys, and even if things don't work out, it's easier to flip those guys, I feel like, than it is to maybe flip some bottom-level guys. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of guys in our league that are conservative with their money when they're at the bottom. They say, hey, I'm too far far away. I'm not going to win this year, and they just don't go after the big names. But would it be more advantageous advantageous for those guys to go and get some top names and be able to flip them at, in the middle of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that strategy makes sense. Um for someone that's at the bottom and may not be able to win, uh, grabbing a couple top guys that you can move, like you said, more easily uh, at the deadline, and then you know using some of that other money you have to get some uh, guys that are potential high rewards. You know, uh, those boomer bust guys that can you know really uh, help your team out for keepers or to, to trade later in the year. So um, you know, I guess it really depends on their their philosophy if they're writing off the season or not. I mean, I personally, I can't ever think of a time that I would write off a season. I mean, I'm trying to weasel my way into the playoffs and then anything can happen. So, uh, I don't know. I, I think for 
me personally, I might still take the money and, and not buy those top tier guys. All right, anything else auction-related you guys think we need to hit here? Um, I know we talked about it, Kyle. You've been trying to sell me Ken Giles for a while um, as far as closers. I think the top price that we've seen a closer go for in the last couple of years is right around, a little over 20 bucks. I think Chapman, uh, Kimbrell yeah. went for right around that range. Um, I know we talked about it in the snake draft a little bit. What is your strategy as far as does it differ in an auction draft? Are you willing to pay that twenty dollars for the keeper? I don't know that any of us have ever done that as far as pay that twenty bucks for for a keeper or for a closer. I'm sorry. It seems like we're all more willing to wait till the end, maybe get that seven or eight dollar keeper if we can, <clears throat> or a closer. I'm sorry. Um, does your strategy change at all with, with the auction draft or similar? Um, this year, I'm considering paying for saves, so I I am changing my strategy this year. I believe to try and get one of those top guys, and I'm willing to go that price because I've been burned the last couple of years where I've left the draft with five what I thought were closers, and sometimes by the time I get home, something's changed from the draft. So. For me, if I'm going to spend money on closers, which I think I'm going to spend some kind of money on closers, I'd rather know that I'm going to have guys at the top whose job security is safer. Okay, because I'm a guy that's gone both ways in the past. I've, I've had drafts where I left with five, six closers on my roster, and I've had drafts where I leave with, with one or two. And I don't really know that there's a, there's a set way to go about it. I, I, I kind of am leaning towards just kind of punting the position. This, this year, for whatever reason. I, I think maybe I'll go after one top one, and then I'll just punt it the rest of the way. And I'll, I'll do what Kyle said, and I'll just see if I can pick up some guys throughout the year. So it's going to be interesting. I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong way to go with the with the closer situation. The only thing with that is if you're going to you, come in to, you come in out of the draft with a strategy based off whatever your team looks like, and... In our league, it may be I'm going to punt holds and saves, and I'm going to go for the counting stats. Um, there's other guys that will, you know, go hard after holds and um, not not go after saves and punt that category. Um, but then you're going to want to acquire guys in the waiver wire that have saves, and then somebody has to go. You can't just add more players, and usually the guys that go are maybe guys that you were getting holds from and then you're you go from being at the top of one category to middling in both and then you run the risk of losing those categories. So I guess for you guys that are gonna add saves throughout the year, does that then change your strategy? You know, you know what I'm asking? Yeah. I see what you're saying there. I mean obviously you're saying if I have twenty five really solid players 
at some point I'm going to want to win those categories that I'm giving up, mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to give up some of those players. I just feel like there's going to be someone that's expendable on my team. I'm going to find out yeah. that, that I can stream. And I just I just think uh, there's going to be enough value out there, and there's going to be enough guys that, that win jobs, that lose jobs, that you can pick up as long as you're vigilant throughout the year. I'm not set on it by any means right now, but it's just something I've been tossing around. Because I've been a guy that's drafted five closers in the past, and it's it's worked out sometimes, and, and it's not worked out other times. So I feel like it's kind of just a hit or miss. It's interesting to see what two of the better owners in the league are, are looking at from that perspective this year. Yeah, I, I personally, I tend to, here's a little secret to my draft strategy, I tend to leave um, three or four spots on my team that I just draft the person because I have to. Um, I don't necessarily care who those $1 guys are at the end of my draft, and I trust that throughout the year those spots are going to get um, used up throughout just based off of you know adding guys to close, or maybe I find a hitter that's going to get hot and you know has some upside, so... Um, I'll spend those extra dollars that maybe I would someone else would have used on a, a quality player um, on some of my other bench players, so that those bench players can be even better. And you know, those bottom four guys are guys I'm just rotating. Well, I guess this this that question that I posed came up last year when I went out and acquired what I thought were a bunch of closers um, throughout the season. So I added Drew Storen. Joaquin Soria and um, Greg Holland to my team throughout the trade deadline. So I thought I had going to the playoffs what was really strong with closers. Holland gets hurt and his performance dips and Wade Davis becomes a closer. Soria gets traded to the Pirates where he's behind Melanson. Um, and then Storin, the Nationals for some reason, trade for Jonathan Papelbon. And he becomes their eighth inning guy, and his numbers blew up as an eighth inning guy. So, I went from being what I thought was really strong in saves, and I ended up losing. Um, you know, I, I thought I was okay with holds because I had Batansis, and I ended up then being, I think, too strong in holds. But I didn't want to get rid of either of those guys because they were all still good pitchers. So that kind of, I think, really turned on me as far as going for Sage, which now, now I'm questioning my Sage strategy to begin with. But any concerns there, or is that just bad luck? <laughs> I think you just ran into some bad luck there at the end of the year last year. I mean, that's all it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't give that up to anything other than bad luck. Yeah, because those three guys were all dominant closers. So Here, Here's one thing that I wanted to talk about before before we get to the end here. Uh, starting pitching is an area where I think we might have the three most contrasting <clears throat> styles out of, out of the three of us right here that you can get. Um, I've always been a guy that I want to make sure I have one or two strong, and then I really don't carry a lot of starting pitching generally throughout the year. I'll fill in when I need to, and I, I kind of play my starting pitching based off of who I'm playing that week. Um, Kyle, I feel like you're a guy that likes to have a lot of starting pitching on your team. You seem to always have seven or eight starting guys, and you always make sure you fill up your max starts in our league. And Kaz, you're kind of a guy that that does things a little differently. You're kind of right in the middle, I feel like, in the two of us. You, you don't generally go after those top arms. Um, what's the right way to go here? What's your thought process on what you guys like to do starting pitching-wise? 
Well, the thing that terrifies me about starting pitchers is the fact that every pitch they throw could be their last. So I hate investing money in them. And the guys that I usually tend to go for are guys that they're going to take the ball every fifth day. They're going to throw 200-plus innings. And they're not going to go out there necessarily and be top 10 at the position at the end of the year. But I feel like I'm going to have a lot of guys that are 25 to 50 in that range. And um, last year it worked for me because pitching on my team carried me at a time where I didn't think I had very good pitchers, um, but my offense was letting me down. So I was actually winning matchups based off my pitching, which was unexpected. But I had some guys like Hamill and Lackey that I got, and they were just really good. Um, And they weren't injury risks, and they took the ball every five days. They gave me seven innings, maybe three runs, seven Ks, and that adds up over the course of a week. So that was my strategy last year. I think I'm going to stick with it again, but um, that's kind of why I do what I do with pitching. Yeah, I I tend to uh, get two or three starters that I really like, and then um, after that, it's, it's just anybody that can pick up a ball and throw it. Um, I don't really care who you are. It's just if I like the matchup, and I get my max starts because uh, I like to try and take the counting categories. And um, if I pick the right matchup, then I'm going to win some of those other, um, you know, categories like ERA and WHIP. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, you guys obviously know that I tend to do is, um, you know, once the deadline comes, I'll buy a lot of starting pitching because. Uh, there tends to be some good arms out there for good deals from the teams that are dropping out of the playoffs. And um, I, I fill out my rotation that way when it's time to hit the playoffs. And I trust my offense to carry me during the regular season. Now, I know, obviously, you've been successful in this league for a while, Kyle. Um, I like to consider the three of us three of the better owners in our league. Um, I feel like that might be the one area where, where I definitely lose to you guys. And it might be an area where I have to rethink my strategy because I'm kind of a guy that likes to play a little bit backwards when it comes to starting pitching and I know I'm a guy that isn't afraid to go and reach our 30 innings minimum and, and win those odd categories like ERA, whip, yeah, batting average the, against. You value the ratios. It, I'm looking, looking back on it. Is it more of a disadvantage for me to, to I don't want to say I give up on the counting stats but if I feel like I know I'm not going to win those, I feel like I go after making sure I win the other ones. Is it more advantageous for me to, to go after the counting stats? You want my honest opinion? Yes. Uh, then I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> I would say you go out and get the counting ones because I think if you can throw enough innings out there, you know, you got a good chance to win those. And, um, you know, if you really take the time to look at the matchups, like I said, not that – you know, there's necessarily a science behind it, but if you if you can find the right ones, you got a chance to win those those ratio statistics as well. Where you know you're only giving yourself a chance to win a couple categories. I'm going out and I'm giving myself a chance to win every category. So um, <clears throat> that, just, that makes more sense. Yeah, I'm, there's some value. I guess for you, I think when you play a guy like Kyle, who you know is going to have a hundred innings in a week, um, you tend to try to beat him in the categories that you know you have a chance to beat him in. 
I think that's. Yeah, I think I think that's the lesson learned here. Is the one thing I've been looking at changing a little bit this year is going after those those count, counting stats this year a little bit harder than I have in years past. I, I've been a guy that's prided myself on winning those odd categories and and kind of not worrying about K's and wins as much. So I feel like that, that might be a lesson learned to the listeners out there. Make sure you go after those counting stats. Try to win K's. Try to pile up uh, wins if you can, and, and maybe not worry as much about the the ERA, the whip. Uh, those wins will come, I think, as far as just evening out. Hey, I, uh, I have a question I want to pose to you guys before we uh, wrap this thing up. Um, let's say you got one dollar left. You're filling the bench spot. Throw out a you know one to five names that you're interested in grabbing. Um, just curious what you guys think of those one dollar guys. You you know take a chance on. Well, this is something I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I wanted to bring up here to end. So, I was thinking the last couple of years we've seen guys get um, Carlos Rodon last year for a dollar. Um, I think Marcus Stroman two years ago was a dollar player at the end of the draft. So there's guys that are potentially players um, who could find a fifth spot in the rotation as a top prospect. Um, so, like, this year, a guy that I think is a dollar candidate would be, like, a Blake Snell. Um, someone along those lines. Last year, I took um, Jung Ho Gong with my last pick for a dollar and then wasn't patient enough with him. Um, so, that's another guy. I mean, the, the unknowns. Those are the guys, I think, that are nice. The one dollars, the prospects have a chance to start out of camp. Um I'm trying to think off the top of my head who some other guys are. So you got Snell. Um, uh, a Carson Fulmer for the White Sox, maybe. I mean, I, I'm, I don't love... The White Sox probably aren't going to use him in the rotation, but I think he has a chance to move quickly. Steinman, yeah, I'm Snell was sure. the name I was thinking of, was the first one that came to mind. I'm not usually a guy that likes to do that that much and and take the risk of drafting a minor league guy for a dollar at the end. Some guys in our league do it. Um, but yeah, I guess you're, you're just looking at, I, I think Dansby Swanson might be a guy that, that goes in our league this year. So I know we actually talked about that earlier, but I, yeah. I know I think Swanson actually will be a guy that, that might get drafted in our league this year in the major league draft. He's a guy that I can see coming up and being in the big leagues this year. So Yeah, I didn't want to say him because – it's kind of my plan right now, but um, <laughs> Kyle, anyone in your mind? Yeah, I mean, Snell was the, the name that came to me first, but uh, another guy, A.J. Reed, I think is going to be coming up pretty quickly and going to have some impact that might be left off the radar a little bit. Um, and then I'm a Reds guy, so I mean, in our league, he's not going to be there, but a guy like Jesse Winker, who I think has a chance to move up and, and get some outfield playing time this year. Um, especially if they look to move Bruce at some point. So Yeah, I was um, thinking of guys like Lewis Brinson, who has a shot, well, not with Desmond being signed today, um, but a guy like Brinson, um, you said Swanson already, for position players. Um, the the kid from Colorado, Murphy, the catcher, he would be a dollar player I'd consider because he's got some pop, and, you know, I've talked about how I like Rockies players here. Um there's a middle infielder for the A's, Chad Pinder. 
I have some interest in at shortstop potentially as a dollar player. Um, you know, Giolito is not available in our league, but he would be a guy that I think is worth a dollar at the end of a draft. And then you got to look at some of these um, these Cuban signings. You got a guy like uh, Guillermo Heredia. He got signed this week from the Mariners. Has a chance to come in and start in their outfield. And then um, I think Yaisel Sierra from the Dodgers. They just gave him $30 million. He's another arm that the Dodgers have. And then there's even some guys like Jerks and Profar. Um, We know he can hit. Where's he going to play? He's a guy that's worth a dollar. Even a guy like Alex Guerrero maybe gets traded to the American League and then these guys are worth their value. And as your 25th man, um, I think there's some real possibility to hit on some guys like that. So Another guy for the Cardinals, Luke Weaver. Um, he's been running with the first team the first week of spring training. He's a college guy, two years ago drafted. And we've seen Waka and Marco Gonzalez move quickly through that system. So um, Luke Weaver's another guy that, you know, if Carlos Martinez goes down with an injury or Waka's arm flares up or Wainwright tears his Achilles walking out of the batter's box again, um, you know, the Cardinals may lean on Luke Weaver. So, all right, um, I think we are at the point where it's time to wrap this thing up. So, guys, thank you for joining me on short notice tonight. And I'm looking forward to um, us talking shortstops then this week. Or talking Carlos Correa and everybody else, I guess, is more how it's going to go. So, thank you for joining me. It was fun talking strategy and getting um, into Kyle's mind a little bit since Kyle's much better than us. So, yeah, you guys don't have to say that. I lied this whole time anyway, so you're not going to be in my mind. <laughs> Appreciate the chance to lie to our viewers. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks, guys. Um, find us on Twitter at RedTriangle23. Subscribe iTunes, SoundCloud. You know the deal. And um, we'll make sure to talk to you guys this week. Thanks.